This morning, uh, as it states in your bulletin, I wanted to look together with you into the doctrine of what has been called the mutual indwelling of the Trinity, uh, the Father and the Son and the Spirit, the Son and the Father and the Spirit, the Spirit and the Father and the Son, and the implications of our understanding of this doctrine as it relates to our salvation. Uh, but before we get into that, I wanted to quote from this book. It's called The Fountain of Life. The full title is The Fountain of Life Opened Up or a display of Christ and his essential and mediatorial glory. Back then they used to have those long titles. But it is an amazing blessing to the church. Written by John Flavel. But in the preface, and I want to give it away. After the the lesson, uh, the first person that asks, I'll give it to them. Um... But in the preface, he's being kind of like a mentor to the reader. The preface title is To the Christian Reader. And I want to quote, he's he's giving guidance on how to think about truth as God has revealed it. Listen to what he says. This, therefore, will be a very considerable considerable part of your confirmation and growth in your understandings. So he's saying that this is very important if you want to grow in your understanding and your growth and maturity in the knowledge of God. To see the body of the Christian doctrine as it were at one view as the several parts of it are united in one perfect frame, and to know what aspect one point has upon another, and which are their due places. Okay, And what he's saying there is to see the whole, to see how all the parts relate as a whole, to have it in one view. Continuing, there is a great difference between the sight of the several parts of a clock or watch as they are disjointed and scattered abroad and seeing them joined and in use and in motion. In other words, there's a difference between seeing a watch and all the parts scattered, separated and seeing the whole. To see here a pin and there a wheel, and not to know how to set them all together, nor ever see them in their due places, will give but little satisfaction to the soul. It is the frame and design of holy doctrine that must be known. In other words, the whole. And every part should be discerned as it has its particular use to that design. And as it is connected with the other parts. And by means of this only, the true nature of theology, together with the harmony and perfection of truth, could be clearly understood. He's saying, he later on says that this was a great defect in the church during that time. That there was emphasis on doctrine, but doctrines set up in a line, but not understood together. Okay? He says, doing so, understanding the whole, serves to render the mind more judicious, and so it causes the memory to be more tenacious and retentive to truths. And he goes on to say, A saving, though imperfect, knowledge of Christ will bring us to heaven. But a regular and methodical, as well as saving knowledge of him, 
will bring heaven to us. And Martin Lloyd-Jones also talks about this in his book on preaching and preachers. And he talks about how the minister should have a body of truth from which flows his preaching. In other words, he's in, in him is built up the word of God as a whole. And he's preaching from that. And I have found it And I think that that's the burden of this book and why he writes the way he writes in the following chapters. Uh, And some of y'all probably have already read this and know that when you read it and you understand the whole, there's precious truths as you see how all of God's word comes together in Christ. And so, how does this relate to the lesson? As you see more of the heart of what God has revealed, you will understand the parts. Okay? There's a difference between a bunch of truths stacked up next to each other and knowing the heart the substance of those truths that relate all of them together. And there are essential truths that we need to know. What what doctrine unites all doctrines together? Can someone answer me this? The doctrine of God, right? Knowing God. That is the whole point of this. That we know Him. And in knowing Him will shape and form your understanding of everything, of creation. This was the last message on knowing the Trinity. Shapes everything. And you will grow in the wisdom and knowledge of God, knowing His will and His ways, His character. You will relate with God in freedom because you know who you're relating with. And you know that He's revealed Himself to you. And so this is the burden of this message and the last message on the Trinity is that we relate our salvation to God. That we connect our salvation to God. And so here's an example of what I'm talking about. And the difference between stacked up truths and knowing how they all come together. Let's say... That I, that I'm giving a lesson and I say, you know, God has many names. He's the great I am, Yahweh. He is the Almighty, the Sovereign One, the Holy One. And also, He's also called the Father. And He's also called, uh, Sovereign, Ruler. Okay. I hope that you feel the tension there that I just reduced the name the Father to a name among many. And what that what we do when we do that is we just cause confusion. Okay? There is a name of God that is most essential to him. It's the name into which we have been baptized, immersed. The name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this is so important for us to understand. This is eternal life that you know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. This this is eternal life that you know the Father and the Son. If you will, go to 1 John chapter 2. 
And so we don't believe in an abstract God. We believe in a God who has specifically revealed himself personally. And I hope at the end of this message, our jealousy for our God increases. Now, you remember Athanasius. He was jealous for the name of God. Remember the last message I quoted from the Athanasian Creed, and he said, If anyone who desires to be saved, let him hold to this one universal faith, without which cleave to, without impurity, will perish everlastingly. And this is that universal faith, that we believe in one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. Now, for some reason, he saw that it was that important that when we name God, we name him Father, Son, and Spirit. Does Scripture give us that emphasis and force? In 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, the Apostle John is talking about the end times. And he's saying, little children, it is the last hour. Now, if anybody's wondering if we are right now in the end times, they were the, in the end times. Little children, it is now, the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might be made manifest that none of them were of us. Now, what fellowship did they leave? Well, just in the previous chapter, this is the fellowship that they left. That which was from the beginning, chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, what has been revealed to us of God in this one who had come, the word of life. And the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Who is he talking about? Jesus Christ, the Son, who was with the Father, who's always been with the Father, made manifest to us, verse 3, that which we have heard, we declare to you that you might have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. The fellowship of which these antichrists that John is talking about in the second chapter left that fellowship, the fellowship of the people of God and the Holy Trinity. This is the emphasis that John is making. We'll continue to read in verse 20. But you have an anointing from the Holy One and you know all things. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Now, in John's mind, when he's thinking about God, who is he thinking about? 
not some abstract deity, specifically the Father, the Son, by the Holy Spirit. Let therefore that abide in you which you have heard from the beginning. If that what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you will also abide in the Son and in the Father, the fellowship. And this is the promise that he has made to us, eternal life. What is eternal life? That you may know the Father and the Son. Our knowledge of God, our knowledge of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and all the implications of that in our salvation are utterly important for your health as a Christian. For your saving knowledge of God. This stuff is not just technical, mystical, abstract, mumbo-jumbo. I promise. Look at Revelation 14. Let us be jealous for this name. Revelation 14, verse 1. Just coming out of 13, John had been talking about the mark of the beast. Now, everyone likes to talk about the mark of the beast. 666, number of man. Not a lot of people talk about the mark, the other mark. The mark of the children of God, the mark of the redeemed of the earth that is on their forehead. Now, what is it? Then I looked and behold a lamb standing on the mount, on Mount Zion and with him 144,000. Now, real quick, 144,000. That's a, that 12 times 12 is 144, right? So 12 times 12,000, 144,000. The number 12 in Hebrew culture is a number of multiplicity. Myriads upon myriads. Ten thousand times ten, ten thousands. It's, it's the same... Uh, apocalyptic literature uses symbols to portray a concept. And the concept that's being portrayed here is... And the Hebrew man will feel it, the impact. It's the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise... As there are numbers of stars in the sky, so will my people be. The number, it will be more than the grains of sand on the seashores. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands. And what will be the mark on their forehead? The name, listen, having his father's name written on their foreheads. In the ESV, it's the name of the Lamb and His Father. That's the way it's translated. In the end times, how important is it that is on your mind? That's why I believe the use of the forehead, what's on, the, what's on your mind as you go about life, is it this name? Are you jealous for this name? And perhaps maybe it's just because we haven't understood the depths of the riches of the glories of this glorious mystery of what has been revealed to us of the Holy Trinity in our salvation. And so I hope that you feel the force of this, especially as we live in the end times What's the mark on your forehead? Is it this name? Okay. I hope that we feel that the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is not just one name among many, but it is showing uh, to us the very foundational reality of who God is. 
And that's why Athanasian, Athanasius said, let's name God through the Son and call him Father. Rather than naming God through his works merely and calling him unoriginate or creator. Now, is God uncaused? Is God creator? Absolutely. But again, and this helps us in our understanding, remember the stacked up truths. And then what is the heart? The heart is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's that's what should be on your minds as you think about God. In the progression of redemption history, do we see Trinity clearly in the Old Testament? No. We don't see Trinity clearly in the Old Testament. There are hints. Not as clearly. Now we can absolutely prove and defend the Trinity from the Old Testament. But as the progression of Revelation continues, the Son comes and names God for us. Right? And so let us name God through the Son and call Him Father. Remember also Gregory of Nazianzus, one of the Cappadocian fathers. He said, when I say God, I mean Trinity. Why did he have to say that? It's because there was a lot of talk about God, but abstract. It may even sound right. But where's, who are you talking about? The Father? The Son? They did not have a divine essence in their mind when they thought about God. They had in their mind Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in unity. The essence is the essence in which they shared in the relations of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are what they called the subsistences or hypostases. It's that which lies under. In other words, the most fundamental thing that you could say about God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's no God underneath them, behind them. No. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in relation. That's God. Okay? Let me... I, I don't know if I had enough time, but I think it would be helpful to dive in into the, a little bit of the history in the 4th century as the doctrine of the Trinity providentially was attacked by heresies within the church. Okay? And it even caused a little bit of tension and division that I think what well and a lot of other scholars think that it was unnecessary. Okay? Here's why. The church was divided from the east and the west. Okay? You had the eastern, you had the eastern church and the western church. The western spoke Latin. The eastern spoke Greek when they uh when they studied theology. And there were some cultural differences as well. For instance, in their frame of mind, the Western church, whenever they wanted to understand and be faithful to God's word, to represent him, they started with the one and asked, okay, how can the one be three? Well, in the Eastern church, they started with the three and thought and asked the question, how can the three be one? Okay? So you have different starting points. And because of the language, there were words being used that translated differently than what they actually meant. Now, I don't want to get too technical, but basically the Western church would say, We believe in one substance and three parsalpan. When that that translated into the Greek, they heard masks. They were trying to say persons, persona. But it translated masks to the Eastern Church and they're like, Okay, one divine essence and three masks. Okay? 
That's not what they meant. On the other side, whenever the Greek church would try to explain their settlement, their confession, we believe in one essence and three hypostases. Hypostasis means that which lies under. They didn't mean the same thing in the Greek, but in the Western church, they heard that they believed in one usia, one essence, and three substances. So three essences in their mind. So they, they basically were calling them heretics. The Western church were calling the Eastern church heretics because they believed in three gods. And the Eastern church was claiming that the Western church were heretics because they believed in modalism. They had one essence that shows up or appears in different ways, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Okay? But they were talking past one another. Right? And so, here come Basil the Great, Gregory of Nazianzus, Gregory of Nyssa, the Cappadocian Fathers. And in their writings, the church came to unity. As they said, no, this is what we need to understand. Look, you're, you're saying this, you're saying this, y'all are talking past one another. This is what we all should stand on. And so then in the fourth century, they came to what is called the Cappadocian settlement. And then that was incorporated into the Nicene Creed and the Nicene Council in the year 381. And then the whole church came together in worship of the triune God. Now, that was just a little bit of history. But in application, we need brothers like these Cappadocian fathers. We need brothers and sisters that are able to be patient and keen and aware and be able to discern when people are talking past one another. If there's disagreement among us, Let's be patient with one another. Let's let's try to understand and not be quick to you're a heretic. Right? Let us be more like these Cappadocian fathers that seek to understand one another and and we're all made the better for it. We're all growing in our understanding for it. And so if you don't remember all of that, one thing that to keep in mind that was an emphasis in this Cappadocian settlement was that the most fundamental thing that you can say about God is the hypostasis, the three subsistences, that there's no God behind. Right? There's no fourth thing. There's only Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in relationship. And the, and the essence, the unity, the oneness, the union is their indwellment of each other. They are so intimately involved in this fellowship of communion that they are found to be in one another, sharing everything, even to their own essence. Okay? Try unity. Let's, okay. So, in the last message on the Trinity, we looked into the importance of knowing God as Trinity and how God shapes everything that we think about all that he has revealed. We looked at some things that God became when God began to relate with creation, but God never became Father. God never became Son, never never became Spirit, and cre- therefore, creation wasn't the first time that God gave life. He's always had his son. And salvation isn't the first time that God, that God loved. He's always had his son. And so, this blessed doctrine, the doctrine of the Trinity, is the doctrine upon which everything hangs or falls. 
And I want to now zero with you into how specifically the Trinity shapes our salvation. And specifically how the oneness, the unity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit shapes our understanding of salvation. Our salvation is rooted in that union. Okay? I want to see with you how. Think of this mantra. God so loved the world begins with God so loved the Son. God so loved the world begins with God so loved the world, God so loved His Son. Our salvation is rooted in the very being of God. And there might be some reservations now. It's hard to understand. Some reservation might be, it's hard to understand these things. It sounds mystical. Should we be really playing around with mysteries? Now with mystery, there's a lot of misconception, I believe. Now mystery is something that is revealed, not hidden in the dark. Mystery is something that is for us to know. God is revealing himself. But we will not understand the riches or the depths of the mystery. So there's, so, so wrong response to mystery is two things. One is arrogance, thinking that we can fully know or that we can philosophize and speculate into things that haven't been revealed. That's one wrong response. The other wrong response is avoidance. In other words, not going as far as God has revealed because it's too hard to understand or making people feel guilty that they shouldn't seek to know as God has revealed. Okay? And we don't want to fall into those errors. So we do want to fall. We want to pursue God as He has revealed Himself as Father in the Son by the Spirit. And so before we look at our union with God, let's look at God's union. What's the nature of it? When we read that Jesus says that he and the Father are one, it's obvious that he's not talking about mathematical oneness. Okay? Mathematical oneness, three does not equal one. If we're thinking about it mathematically. But think of it more like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord God is one. Right? Same word in a different, in the beginning, when God created male and female, he brought them together and they became one flesh. So the two became one. It's not mathematical oneness. It's relational oneness. Harmony. Okay? Perfection. Unity and diversity. Okay? So don't let that stumble you as you as we try to understand mutual indwellment. How deep does this union go? So it's a relational oneness which involves a fellowship and communion, mutuality, a sharing of properties, everything that the Son has, the Father has, and everything that the Father has, the Spirit has, they all are one. Everything that the Son does, the Father does in Him, and the Spirit does in Him. Everything that they do, they do in unison and together. Even on the cross, And so there's no existence of any of the persons that exists. There's no part of them that exists outside of this fellowship. It's really important. They're one. So there's a theologian. And there's a word used historically. I'm not going to name it. If you're interested, go ahead and come and ask me. But this word 
in the Greek implies that the three persons of the Trinity exist in reciprocal, eternal relatedness. God is not God apart from the way in which the Father, Son, and Spirit eternally give to and receive from one another what they essentially are. In the 8th century, a theologian, his name is John of Damascus, talked about the doctrine of mutual indwelling, or he also called it the doctrine of mutual interpenetration of the persons of the Godhead. He writes this, the substance, the subsistences dwell, he's talking about the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and, and are established Firmly in one another. For they are inseparable and cannot part from one another. But to keep their separate courses within one another without coalescing or mingling, but cleaving to one another. For the Son is in the Father and the Spirit. And the Spirit is in the Father and the Son. And the Father is in the Son and the Spirit. There's no confusion. Sinclair Ferguson writes this, or in a lecture I listened to, says this. The three subsistences dwell in a mutual circumincession, or the Greek perichoresis, in the one Godhead. The word perichoresis is a word that has the idea that the Father, Son, and Spirit are interpenetrating one another moving around one another in constant mutuality of fellowship. And clearly what the church is seeking to safeguard is the three in oneness of the divine being isn't some numerical or arithmetical oneness, but their oneness is a deeply personal, yes, even interpersonal communion. So it's communion of persons. So they share everything in fellowship. The closest to what we see in creation is of indwellment. Can y'all think of where somebody might be in one another, in someone else? Other than your thoughts. Yeah, the baby is in the mother sharing everything. We're made in the image of God. Or a man and a wife consummating a union. Sharing everything, life, together. We're made in the image of God. And creation is what it is because God is who he is. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is what we were made for, is relationship with Him. Well, how deep does that relationship go? Now let's peer into this union that we have with Christ. Is this is this bunch of conceptual, mystical, abstract ideas that the early church, and they were a pretty weird set of people, Is it even biblical? Well, let's listen to Jesus' words to his own disciples. He's talking to Philip and the gang. And he says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? He's talking to the Pharisees, warning them of unbelief in John 10, verse 38, 37, 38. If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But even if I do them, even though you do not believe, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. The Father and I are one. Is this something important for the disciple of Christ to understand? In the farewell discourse, which is John 13 through 17, this is an emphasis 
If you will, go ahead and turn to uh, John 14. But the farewell discourse, uh, a theologian named Herman Ritterboss writes that the farewell discourse is a place where the church is learning to understand itself in terms of union with Christ. And if you think about it, John 13, he's washing the disciples' feet. Peter says, no, you don't wash my feet. And Jesus says to him, well, if I don't, then you don't have any share with me. Union. In John 14, we read this. In verse 19. A little while and longer and the world will, st- will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. Union. At that day, you will know... What day is he talking about? He's talking about the day of the Spirit's coming, the Spirit of truth that will lead his disciples into all truth. And what's the first thing that you will know when that day comes? You will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Okay? This is hard to understand if your conception of salvation has only been representative and legal. Okay? This is more organic. This is union language. I and you, you and me. We commonly, especially among Reformed group, have had an emphasis on the doctrine of justification as central to our salvation. Amen. But what might be subtle is we begin to view our whole salvation only in terms of justification. But our salvation is a lot more broader than that. And underneath our justification is our union with Christ. Under you, underneath every blessing in the heavenly places is our union with Christ, whether it be justification, sanctification, glorification, all of redemption. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Jesus is showing to us, and you'll see in the rest of the farewell discourse, that our salvation is connected to the relationship between the Father and the Son by the Spirit. What happens in salvation? In every single work of the Son, all that the Son has accomplished in our humanity, He does so in our humanity, united to us. When He became man, there we see us in him and he takes us through his humanity through his union to us through his life death resurrection ascension to the right hand of the father and on the cross we see he became sin who knew no sin That's different than saying just that he bore our sins. That's talking about his his real union to us. He didn't float above our humanity. He really did become a human that could suffer and die. There was a real union that was made and forged and all of the works of Christ were to this end to unite us to the Father to reconcile, to make us one with the Father. Now, go to John 17. This is the end of the farewell discourse, and it ends in a prayer. And it ends in communion with the Father, the Son and the Father. In Jesus Christ, whenever He became human, guess what? 
He did not lose that mutuality of fellowship with the Father. It remained. And so we see the Trinity enter into our humanity, into this creation. That fellowship entered. And in that union, He is bringing us into that fellowship. Now read this. And... Verse 20, verse 20, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. That the world may believe that you sent me and the glory which you gave me, I have given to them. Well, how is that possible? Because he really is united to us. Remember, mutuality, sharing. Everything that the Father has, the Son has and the Spirit has. Everything that the Father does, the Son does, the Spirit does. Mutuality of fellowship, sharing. When the Son comes and unites Himself to us, He shares everything. I in them, you in me, verse 23, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. What we share in this fellowship is everything that the Father and the Son have together in love. So the Spirit comes. What He had promised. He kept telling His disciples, it's better that I go because the Spirit's going to come. And you don't understand this now, but when He does, your joy will be full. Your sorrow will turn into joy when the Spirit comes. Why? Because the Spirit will declare to us I am in the Father. And you in me and I in you. This union. I need to just go ahead and finish. There's, there's more. But go back to John 16. Verse 12, I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. Now, just a thought real quick. It's interesting in John 12, Jesus says this exact same thing. I do not speak on my own authority, but whatever the father speaks, I tell you. And now he's saying, when the Spirit comes, he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever I tell him, he will speak to you. So here you see the Son being like the Father, and now the Spirit is being like Christ. And so that's why Jesus can tell his disciples, I'm not going to leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. Well, why? Because of this mutual indwellment. When the Spirit comes, Christ is coming. And he's coming and listen to this. He will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Sharing mutuality. All things that the father has are mine. What does Jesus Christ come to give to us? Everything that's his. Everything. He gives us entirely himself and brings us into what he has always enjoyed forever in the eternal fellowship of the Trinity of eternal delight and goodness. Therefore, I say to you that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. There's so much more, but I hope that what this 
a lesson like this does is prompt, compel you to grow, to us together to grow in our knowledge of how our salvation connects to our God. Our, our salvation is so sure because of this. Our salvation is in God. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. So Peter says, I'm telling you these things, I'm reminding you these things so that your faith and hope are in yourself. No. They're in God. They're in Him. And this salvation really is all, all grace. All of it. Because on what condition did you meet for the Father to send His Son? No condition. He sent Him freely. And all that the Father had predestined shall come to pass. All that the Son has accomplished shall come to pass. And all that the Spirit is doing to apply shall come to pass. Let me close with this. The end of First John reads this. Chapter 5, verse 19. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in the sway of the wicked one. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us an understanding that we might know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, and in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. And so he says this, oddly, at the end of all this, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen.